0: Yes, we're back after the long, lovely, jubbly weekend on 106.6 FM or through the Radio Player app and on the internet at bcbradio.co.uk. This is BCB Radio with Pick of the Podcasts with me, Mike Kelly. <laughs> been a while, so let's blow off the dust as we look back and listen again to some free-to-listen to -to podcasts that are telling stories about or are made by people in and around the Bradford area. On today's show, it's Welcome to Yorkshire, Talkshire Podcast, Chris Allen's One-to-One and the Ilkley Literature Festival SETI Seminar Podcast. Musically, there is a theme, What Could It Be? see if you can work out what connects the songs on today's Pick of the Podcast. I guess I should
1: know. I once. Love them and leave them fast. Guess I must be done. She had a pocket full of horses. Trojan and some of the muse. But it was Saturday night the pictures of the jockeys that were living for me Believe it or not I started to worry
0: have in the past featured a few interviews from the Welcome to Yorkshire Talkshire podcast and we're going to feature a couple today. This is the first one and we first played it in December last year. It's the late K Meller OBE.
2: I was that kid that that entertained the class. I was always at the front of the class doing sketches and my, my co-pupils all sat around watching me Entertain them and tell them, telling them stories, and and it grew from that into telling stories to my children, and then going to Breton Hall and learning about um, drama, and um, and then being recognised for being sort of a writer actress, and then forming a theatre company. This is a potted history. Uh, forming a theatre company called Yorkshire Theatre Company that used to tour all around Yorkshire doing plays that I'd written and I'd act in them and we'd talk to the audience afterwards to the Yorkshire audiences and they'd, they'd tell me what they liked and they didn't like about it and uh, and then getting a break into television, uh, break at t- Yorkshire TV first and then Granada and then the BBC uh, and, you know, jettison forward and here I am today. <laughs> you Yours is a very
3: inspirational story because you had your girls, your two daughters, quite young, studied, and then you, you you broke into television. So that that's a real inspiration in itself. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I, come
2: sixteen, I fell in love with Anthony, who was a lad in the you know from the ne- the next estate, and um, we fell in love, and uh, it was back in the sixties, and. Yeah, contraception wasn't readily available in the way that it is now and uh, uh, I got pregnant and then when you get pregnant when you got pregnant you got married and that was the end of that so that was as far as I was concerned the end of my life I was going to be married have kids live on the estate push a push chair wash nappies that sort of thing that's what I thought my life was going to be um, and I did a bit of that, I did a bit of all of that and I loved it. I loved being a mom and you know and then I had Gain and my second child when I was nineteen. and you know it was lovely it was my, me and my two little girls and Anthony you know sort of worked to keep keep the roof over our head and food on the table and then I, and then I, and then I moved into drama. I moved, I wanted to study, so I went to Bretton Hall and started studying drama. Um, when my girls went to school, I went back to school because I promised my mum that's what I would do. You know, when I told her I was pregnant, and she was horrified because she she thought I would go to drama school. And I went, no, I'll go back into education, mum. When my girls going, you know, go to school when when my when my when the kids are grown up, which is exactly what I did. And I got a degree, an honors degree in drama. And uh, but what that did for me was that introduced me to scripts. I saw, you know, read Shakespeare and, you know, and, and the Commedia dell'arte and Greek literature and plays Sophocles Nescules, and Aeschyles, et And, you know, I was absorbed in drama and, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I thought I'd landed in heaven. Uh, so cut to year, was it two or three? My third year maybe at Breton, I was, um, I started writing plays and working with other actors and we would make plays, semi-improvised, semi-written. And then when I left, I formed a theatre company, Yorkshire Theatre Company, and um, and we toured around Yorkshire with plays that I'd written. So we'd perform in pubs and clubs and, you know, everywhere, little theatres, mini theatres, places in Bradford, um, little studio theatres. And what I didn't realise was that I was gaining a kind of um, I don't know, uh, like an apprenticeship, really, in writing. And I didn't realise it at the time, but I was. Because Yorkshire people will tell you what they like and what they don't like about your work, which is great. That's what you want to hear, straight off. Oh, I didn't like it when you did that. No, no, I didn't like that. You know, oh, I loved it when you did that, you know, and you kind of go, oh, they love that, you know. And, and so for me, that was a really important part of my development as a writer.
4: Now,
3: I must tell you, that back in the 80s, when I was at school, I absolutely loved drama. And my friend and I went to see a brilliant, brilliant play that stuck with me at Bradford Playhouse. And it was called Paul. Ah, it yeah. was play, wasn't
2: it? That
3: was my first
2: play. So that was the play that I wrote at Bretton Hall. And that got nominated for Best Play. So, you know, there I was, Kay Mellor. I was aged 27, 28 Maybe then. So I was older than your average student, um, but I'd had life history. You know, I'd had got you know life skills that other some of the other students didn't have. And um, there I was with this play, and there were pe- there were people from Oxford and Cambridge and Bristol and you know drama schools and everything competing, and and mine got chosen as best play. You know, and you think, oh my goodness, maybe I do have a skill. You know, and I had people like, you know, James Fenton from The Times and Bill Alexander from the RSC saying to me things like, how did you do that? How did you do that play? And I thought it felt like a totally natural thing for me to do. So I didn't even know what they were talking about. I kind of went, well, I just kind of put it together. But they were going, oh, that's very, you know, unusual. That's a a real skill that you've got there. Okay. So when I when I left, that's when I formed the theatre company because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know whether I wanted to act or write or I wanted something that would do
3: everything. And I mean, that's that play has stuck with me. But in a nutshell, why do you think that that first play that you did was so had such an impact?
2: I think because it was well researched, because I think it was so intimate. It was it was a three hander. And also it was, a you know, my friend, Linda, my dearest friend, my lifelong friend, Linda. It was about her brother-in-law. Sadly, now he's passed away. But she had this brother-in-law who didn't quite fit any mould. He had a learning difficulty. and um, And his mother struggled with him. And his social worker didn't know quite where to place him. And it was also during a time that they were sending kids home and, and giving the responsibility away from the state back to the parental responsibility. And that responsibility for Pat, who was then um, his mother, I called her Joan actually to protect his his privacy, um, was an enormous responsibility for her because she got this lad who got, who was adolescent with a learning difficulty and he was quite, strong and could have violent outbursts. And she had to deal with him more or less on her own because social Mm. services were just there on the periphery because they had their own, they were cutting back, there were jobs being sliced. It was all, you know, it was a difficult time. And I found it really interesting to explore what it might be like to be a parent of a lad that had a learning difficulty. So I, you know, I talked to um, Pat at length and I, you know, and Linda, who was the, you know, the sister-in-law of Paul. And I, and I talked to Paul. In fact, Paul used to come with us. Paul, we, we brought Paul along. The audience used to talk to him. And, and he, he became a little star. You know, everybody wanted to talk to Paul. And he'd go, that's me, that's me. That You know, she's copied me, <laughs> she'd go, you know. And uh, it was brilliant because that added a new dimension when he was with us. And we used to encourage him to come with us. And that, in turn... Got my husband interested in working with people with a learning difficulty, so he then oh, went wow. back to college. He went, he went, he went to uh, Salford University to to do a social welfare course in working with people that have got learning difficulties.
3: Oh, so, well, it, it, was people, it was just so! I just remember it being so powerful and so brilliant, and it has, has always stuck with me. And then I've really followed your career, you know, over the years, the amazing stuff that you've done. So from the 80s. Uh, you know that you've gone on to script write, you've gone on to direct some of the biggest shows on TV for me from Band of Gold to Fat Friends to Girlfriends and so many others, uh, right up to this current release of the fourth series of The Syndicate, which yeah. is our screen. So um what have we got to look forward to? Well you you'll you'll get a really young, wonderful cast who are
2: fantastically vibrant and exciting. And so there's some fresh you know, new young faces around. Uh, there's some people that you've seen before. You know, there's Kim Marsh is in it, Joe Suggs in it, Neil Morris is in it. You know, the, the, you know there are some fam- really familiar faces, um, uh, but also there's some fresh people that you that you haven't seen playing big roles. Um, and it's also also you'll see some fantastic dogs. So because there's dogs in it, they're kennel workers. So the, and and you'll see some beautiful beautiful Yorkshire countryside and you'll see some some fantastic landscapes of Monaco as well so it's part set in Yorkshire part set in Monaco but all the characters are Yorkshire people um Yorkshire characters and you know who I love and they're all diverse and they're all you know come from different backgrounds so each one of them have got a story a big story to tell And then then there's the arc story itself, because nothing's straightforward in this syndicate. Normally, they win the lottery and that's it. Then we kind of go, these are the stories. These are the stories that are told along the way. It's not like that this time. We go, maybe they won the lottery. What happened to their ticket? Who's got their ticket and who has actually won the lottery? So there's a kind of a whole cat and mouse story going on.
0: To hear the whole interview, or to find more of the same, search for the Welcome to Talkshire podcast, or go to the Welcome to Yorkshire website at yorkshire.com to find out loads about Yorkshire. And to find the podcast, use the search box and search for the Talkshire podcast. If you want your podcast or know the podcast that's good, that we might mention on future editions of the show here on Bradford's favourite radio station, please send us the details to email info at bcbradio.co.uk on Twitter at bcbradio or at Mike Kelly Disco. Next, it's Chris Allen from Black Solicitors at lawblack.com with episode 26 of Chris Allen's one-to-one podcast. Let's see, who is Chris's guest today?
5: My guest today, uh, it's a real treat having her here, is an opera singer and actress, Wallace Junta. Now based in Leeds, Wallace hails from Ottawa in Canada, and as you might expect, if you live in these neck of the woods, Wallace is a regular contributor to Opera North and also performs around the world. In 2018, Wallace won the Young Singer of the Year at the International Opera Awards. And I'm looking forward to hearing how Wallace's career has developed and what a normal day is for an opera singer in 2021. So uh, Wallace, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thank you very much, Chris. I'm thrilled to be here.
5: (laughs) Thank you. Okay, I mean obviously selfishly uh, because of the Leeds connection, uh, I want to get to, at some point to Opera North and how you've been performing for them. but just give me give uh, give the listeners a little bit of background. How do we set off uh, join singing? How do we develop into opera and what bro- what brought you to Leeds?
4: Well, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll I'll make it succinct if I can. Um, I've sung since I was a child um, in choirs, singing lessons and lots of little musical theater shows in my hometown in Ottawa. And basically, since I was about seven or eight, I've known that I wanted to be a singer, and that was gonna be it for me. So I took all the, the steps that one would take along the way and ended up um, doing an undergrad in, in singing in uni in Canada. Um, and that led to further studies at Juilliard in New York, a couple of young artist programs, which is like an apprenticeship at an opera company. Like if you were um, in a trade, an electrician, you'd apprentice with a, a master electrician. And so they do the same thing with opera singers. They they put us at in these e- training programs essentially where we understudy and work alongside the, the masters in our field. So I've done one of those in Toronto at Canada's National Company, and then in uh, New York at the Metropolitan Opera. That was in my, my mid-twenties, early to mid-twenties. And then I really just started going for it as a professional and working here and there and I was quite lucky to have several opportunities at the early stages of my career starting around 25 26 where I was given quite a lot of um a big platform I would say uh I was given some really great opportunities early on that kind of kick things for me and I ended up in in Germany in my late 20s I'm 35 now, by the way, so kind of not that young anymore. (laughs) But um, I got a job at a company in Leipzig in Germany, which is one of the bigger houses in Europe. And it's a permanent position, so I was literally on a salary. It's only really possible in a few countries in Europe they have this system where opera singers can can make a a monthly wage and just work at one house. Um, And I didn't only work at that house. they loaned me out pretty often to other places, one of which was Opera North. Uh, in 2017 I got three contracts or sort of three operas in one year here in Leeds at Opera North um, and that is actually what led to me winning that award the next year in 2018 it was based on my work at Opera North primarily in 2017. Um, so yeah, I, I, I got the jobs here in Leeds Uh, I think it was because someone had cancelled. They had someone lined up to sing Cinderella for their 2017 winter show, January, February. And I believe she had to withdraw not that far in advance, maybe six months before, five, five five or six months before. So they were calling around and seeing who was available and who knew the role of Cinderella. This is the Rossini opera, Cenerentola, Cinderella. And I had just done it in Leipzig in Germany. And I sent them a video, I think. And they said, oh, that sounds pretty good. Would you come over and sing it for us? So I I did, um, I think, two auditions, actually, over the course of a few weeks for them. And I got the job. And then that led to the other two shortly after. So.
5: And that's interesting. You had, you, you still had to audition. you, you I did. Th- they became aware of you. They'd, they'd seen your video. Yeah. But you still have to audition.
4: Sometimes you don't. Um, Opera North is quite thorough and I respect that about them um, because they really have a, a family ethos at the company. They care about how an individual singer will fit into their their network, their framework, and they want to meet you, they want to see what you're like to work with. So they actually uh, they paid for me to come over and audition for them, which is, is a real um, rarity in this industry usually you pay for your own audition if a company's interested it's on your dime Um, and sometimes they'll they'll take you on an on an uh, audition video without a live appearance Um, that's becoming more and more common now because of the pandemic Mm -hmm. but pre-pandemic it was pretty rare that you didn't have to sing live and that's because voices sound so different live than they do uh, recorded sometimes and a lot of companies like to hear you in their own theater to know that You'll sound good in, in... I don't know. It's just a thing.
5: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Totally understand. So, in terms of Ottawa then, is I mean, how big is Ottawa compared to, say, Leeds?
4: I think it's about double the population. Right. It's quite large.
5: It's, it's, it's one of the largest in Canada, isn't it?
4: Yeah. Uh, one of the top top five, I'd say. Yeah. Toronto's so, the biggest, for sure. And, and
5: is it renowned for opera?
4: Not Ottawa? At all.
5: Not at all. So.
4: <laughs> Not at all. In fact, we don't even have an opera company anymore in Ottawa. We did... When I was growing up, up until maybe five or six years ago, but uh, they went out of business. Um, I think there was some issues with the management, and we don't have one anymore. It's quite sad. I'm hoping that changes.
5: So, when I, you know, anybody listening to this can 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 look at Wikipedia, and they'll see lots of cities around the world mentioned: Lyon, Sydney, Montpellier, Leipzig, Leeds. How do you manage all that? How do you manage your bookings? How do you, you know, how do you commit yourself to something and then think, oh no, I've missed, I've now committed myself to something in Montpellier. I've missed out on the job in Leeds. How how have you gone about that?
4: You know, it is sometimes quite tough. You have to be a bit ruthless with yourself in this industry because it's always the way that a, a job will come along you know, you'll take it, and then the next day, two more better paying, better opportunities will come along, and you just have to go, nope, nope, no. I've already said yes, I've already signed it, just let it go, let it go, it'll come around again, as constantly, and then there'll be nothing for six months, you know, it never rains, but it pours. Um, but I'm really lucky to have uh, two wonderful management firms, actually. I started out with a Canadian manager in Toronto, Dean Artist Management, and they took me from age 23, I was still in uni, and they've been with me all the way through, so 12 years now. Um, and then also about five years ago, I signed with a firm in London called Intermusica, and they, they actually handle now my, my whole international bookings except for Canada, and my Canadian firm just does Canada. They're quite specialized there. Um, so they basically work together with me to fill my calendar. Everyone has a different relationship with a manager in in opera and performing arts, but the way that we work, um, I'd say their main function for me is setting up auditions, looking for opportunities like they know, for example, what each company is doing two, three, four years out. That's how opera companies plan. So they'll look through the list and go, oh, okay, there's something that would work for Wallace. There's something nice. And then they'll suggest me to the company and the next time that that company's doing auditions, we'll try and work it out so that I can go. Um, So there's there's about 50% that, and then the other 50% is places that I've worked already, or people, conductors or directors that know me already, they will um, sometimes just request me. Things will come in and I won't have to audition. And the idea, as you develop in this career, is that it'll be more of the latter and less of the former. So you'll actually start getting hired off your reputation.
0: That's Chris Allen from Black Solicitors at lawblacks.com. To hear the whole story or for many other interviews with Chris, just search for the Chris Allen one-to-one podcast. So podcast number three is the second of two podcasts from the Welcome to Yorkshire Talkshire podcast with Caroline Nichols and guest Giles Brandreth.
6: I'm in London at the moment, but I'm surrounded by bits of Yorkshire because I'm sitting in the room where I write and where I work and looking down on me is a a painting painted oh a long time ago, I suppose about 120, 130, 140 years ago. Uh, of my great-grandfather, who was the keeper of the poorhouse in Bradford. And he looks rather severe in this painting. It was painted by a man called Thompson. And Thompson was famous as an artist because he painted all the big Yorkshire figures of that time. He was a Bradford-based artist, including, he was a friend of Bramwell Bronte. And when he was young, he painted a painting of the Br- the Bronte sisters, which is now hanging at, at Howarth. So it's a pretty good connection, I think. I've actually got a painting on my wall of my great-grandfather, the keeper of the poorhouse in Bradford, gazing down at me. And I've also got lots of other bits and pieces in the room that have Yorkshire connections, because as well as family coming from Bradford, I have given my teddy bears to Newby Hall, which is near Ripon, also in Yorkshire. So my heart is, because my my heart is really with my teddy bears, and they all live now at Newby Hall. And the reason that they live at Newby Hall is, you may know this, during the Second World War, if the Nazis had landed in London, the king and the queen were going to escape from London to God's own country, God's own county, Yorkshire, where they knew they'd be safe. They were never in danger there. And they were going to go and live, as an alternative to Buckingham Palace, at Newby Hall, because uh, the royal family were friends of the Compton family who owned Newby Hall, and they're going to go and live with them. So when I was making a film about this a few years ago at Newby Hall, I thought to myself, well, if it's good enough for the royals, it's probably good enough for my teddy bears. And since they already had a wonderful collection of dolls' houses, I thought, this is the place for my teddy bear collection. So ancient and modern whether it's my great grandfather or my teddy bears, which I regard as my children, my heart belongs to Yorkshire.
3: Oh, of course it does. And now I know that you're the perfect torture podcast guest, because I know that you can talk, Giles. But I may regret asking this question. But for the listener, give a potted history of your life and career, because you were born in Germany, weren't you?
6: Well, I was only born in Germany because it was after the Second World War, and there were a lot of British military people stationed in Germany. So I was born in a British Forces hospital in Germany. So I was really born on British territory, but in in Germany. My parents were there after the war, and we came straight away back to England. My mother's—I mean, my my background—just written a book, in fact, called Odd Boy Out, which is about my my childhood, and in it, funnily enough, I, I realize. And I suppose anybody, uh, you know, if you set out to write the story of your childhood, where you come from, you begin to think, well, where do I come from? And I come from my forebears, people who came before me. I'm very influenced by them. People like this fellow who was the keeper of the poorhouse house in Bradford and another of my great grandfathers who left England and went to America and made a fortune selling something called Brandreth's pills. They cured everything. You name it, they cured it. And he became one of the richest men in the world. Unfortunately, he had a lot of children. They had a lot of children. So the money completely disappeared by the time it got down to my parents. We inherited none of it. But he was huge. I've got got a picture of him in in the wall as well. So I'm influenced by the people in my heritage, including a man called Jeremiah Brandreth, who was the last person to be beheaded for treason in England in 1817. He was a Luddite and known as the hopeless radical. When I was an MP, I thought of myself as the hopeful radical. (laughs) So my my father's family came from Cheshire and went over to America. My mother's family came from Yorkshire and uh, spread out all over the country. I was born as you say, in Germany, in Bridgewater Hospital, came back to live in London because my father was a, a solicitor and he earned his living as a solicitor. And so I was brought up, really, in London all my life. I went to school and, funny enough, writing this book, I didn't, I, I realised, which I hadn't really thought about before, how much my, my parents gave me a very, very happy childhood. There was a famous poet called uh, Philip Larkin, associated with Hull. And he wrote um, a poem, which I won't quote, about what parents can do to you. And I have my own version of that poem, which begins, they tuck you up, your mum and dad, because that's what my parents did. They tucked me up in bed, made me feel cosy and happy and contented. They read me stories. They recited poems to me. They gave me my love of language. So I had a very happy childhood. My wife sometimes says, Charles, you never left your childhood. It's been a great shadow cast across your life. I say, no, I spent my life in my childhood. It was a golden garden. And I was lucky to live there. And in fact, it's true. My wife says, you know, there's been no development in your life, Charles. Everything you do is what you were doing at school. You're still playing with teddy bears. You love dressing up as a little boy. You're still wearing those silly jumpers. You know, at, at, you were in the debating society at school. Then you became an MP. You used to write for the school magazine. Now you write for the newspapers. You used to act in the school plays. Now you act on stage. And I do. And it's true. I have really managed to extend my childhood throughout my life. So you asked me what my story is. My my story is I had these two lovely parents. I was the young, I was the first boy, three older sisters born before the Second World War, much older than me. And then 10 or more years later, I came along, the little golden boy. And if I'd been another girl, my father wanted to call me Mercedes, because that's what he really wanted, a Mercedes. He <laughs> got me. And they treated me like a little golden egg. And I was spoiled rotten, and they let me get away with anything. That's why I think I haven't stopped talking. I've been so happy ever since I arrived. I've been ch- jabbering away. My wife said to me when I was writing about this book, writing this book, she said, you're writing about any of your early girlfriends? I said, well, there weren't many of those. Said, I'm not surprised there weren't many of those. She said, and I want you to know, Giles, if anyone, any of your girlfriends ever kissed you, it was only to shut you up. That's the only <laughs> reason anyone would ever want to kiss you, to shut you up. So I've been jabbering away since I was a little boy, and I went to a school called Beadales, which is named after Beadales, the place in Yorkshire, a wonderful hill in Yorkshire. Uh, but I was brought up, really, in the south of England. Uh, and but, but I feel that England is my home, and I do feel very Yorkshire, because almost as soon as I got into television, I mean, basically, I went to school, then I went to university, and as my wife will tell you, I've just gone on doing the same things, acting writing, having fun. And I first appeared on television when I was at university, which was great fun. And one of the people I was the contemporary of at university was Richard Whiteley. And Richard Whiteley, of course, the voice of Calendar, the face of Calendar for many years. Uh, I came up at the beginning of the 1980s to Leeds for the first time uh, to do a countdown. But actually, it wasn't the first time. I first was in Leeds, in the 1970s because I decided to put on a Sonne Lumière. Do you even know what a Sonne Lumière is? Go on, it's,
7: it's, a, it's,
6: a it's a sound and light show. They were very popular until I came along and then I killed it. The Sonne <laughs> stands for sound, Lumière is French for light. They were very popular in France and uh, we did quite a few of them in Britain and I did one at Temple Newsome House outside Leeds hmm. and it was not a success. We did it in August and we, we knew there'd be rain, so we put up a, a roof over where the audience... They would sat outside the beautiful... You know the house at Temple Newsome. It's beautiful. They sat outside looking at the house, and we told the history of the house uh, with great actors speaking the voices and telling the story, and, and then the building was lit up at different points. But we hadn't... We re- we'd reckoned on rain. We knew it's going to rain in August. In Leeds, of course it is. And it did. But we didn't reckon on the hailstones and the noise of the hailstones on the corrugated iron roof meant that people couldn't hear the sonny lumiere so this was early 1970s it was almost the first job i had it was in leeds and remember i stayed at the swallow hotel not far from the station and years it was before i could afford staying at the queen's anyway that's when i stayed <laughs> and it was a bit of a disaster because the hailstones meant you couldn't hear a couldn't hear a sound the next year we decided instead of having a corrugated iron roof we would have a um, a tarpaulin roof because it wouldn't make so much noise when the hailstones came there were no hailstones the next year there was wind and the wind got up so much that it pulled the awning off its you know it sort of escaped the oh, ropes the yeah. ropes, and the audience it was a disaster so my first experience of leeds was a bit of a disaster but then when i came back to leeds a few years later with richard whiteley i came and for many years was a regular coming to Leeds to do Countdown and it was it was such fun doing Countdown in the early days with Richard called himself the Mayor of Wetwang.
3: As yeah. And that's and how we was, met isn't it because I worked in the production team on Countdown but that was when it had gone across the border to Media City.
6: Yes, I don't know. I know that. I mean, uh, to be honest, we Yorkshire people, as I I'm, I'm an honorary Yorkshireman because of my great great grandfather. I have Yorkshire blood. And also, I have judged. I go back to Bradford quite a lot because I've been not the judge, the, the master of ceremonies uh, at the Curry Awards in.
7: Ah, Bradford. yes, yes, sir.
6: I love a, a good curry. But now, I loved it when it was at YTV and we had Emmerdale Farm and it was called Emmerdale Farm in those days in the next mm-hmm. studio. And I remember when Richard showed us the, when they refurbished the YTB studios in Leeds, and he was so proud of his dressing room, it had all been done up. But I went in, he looked, I looked around, I said, look, have you seen that hole in the wall, Richard? He said, what hole in the wall? I said, above your dressing table. There's a, it was the size of a, a plug, an electric socket, and it was straight, a hole in the wall going straight through to carol vorderman's dress she used to do the numbers in those days carol vorderman's dressing room next door i said there's a hole in the wall richard he said i know he said i know i saw it the moment i came in he said i was going to report it to uh, maintenance and then i
0: thought what the hell let her look to hear the whole giles brandreth or kay meller podcast or for more of the same search for the welcome to Yorkshire podcast or go to the welcome to yorkshire website at yorkshire.com <laughs> For Bradford, this is BCB 106.6 FM with Pick of the Podcasts. If you've missed any of the show, or if you have friends and family further afield who'd be interested in hearing the show, they can get to hear it by going to the Listener Game feature, which you'll find at the BCB website at bcbradio.co.uk, where you'll find all the shows from the last 30 days. And what's out there on Twitter? Sasha Cohen Chowdhury. At the Terrace, a French-themed restaurant in Saltaire. Dewsbury Rams. Dewsbury Rams are pleased to announce the loan signing of Elliot Morris from at Halifax Panthers. Paul Chadwick at Keefley Bus. Fantastic to see that all 60 airline buses are now getting through Green Gates without delays after two years. Sam Haynes. Oh, my days! I just used a brand new right turn filter traffic light at Green Gates Junction. Be still, my beating heart. Capital of culture and what feels like the world's longest roadworks are finally over. Winning at life, Bradford. Finally, from show number 91 at the back end of 2021, it's the Ilkley Literature Festival SETI Seminars Podcast, which is a podcast series of fascinating short talks by leading experts, introducing you to a wide range of topics. Today's seminar is with James Mussel and the Enquire Within, How the Victorians Invented the World Wide Web.
8: So uh, the talk's entitled Inquire Within, how the Victorians invented the World Wide Web. Back in 1980, long before he wrote the protocols that would underpin the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee, then newly arrived at CERN, was wondering how to manage the information being produced by its different research teams. As they were all using different systems, storing data in a range of different formats, His solution was a hypertext system through which different documents could be linked to one another in non-hierarchical ways. He wanted people to be able to make the sorts of associations that you make in your mind, rather than according to some abstract system of logic. Now, as he wondered what to name this new system, he recalled, and I'm quoting him here, a musty old book of Victorian advice I noticed as a child in my parents' house outside London. That book was called Inquire Within Upon Everything. Berners-Lee continues, With its title of suggestive Magic, the book served as a portal to a world of information, everything from how to remove clothing stains to tips on investing money. He duly called, his new hypertext system, Inquire. Berners-Lee left CERN after six months, but on returning in 1984, he continued to use Inquire to manage his own work. A few years later, he would return to the same problem, how to manage information produced by different research teams in different formats, and in 1989 submitted a proposal to his superiors that might solve the problem. Given the go-ahead, Berners-Lee quickly produced the first graphical browser, the first HTTP server, and HTML, the language of the web. In 1991, he made everything public, handing it over to everyone to build. And the web as we know it today was born. But what of the musty book? What was it about this Victorian text that came to mind when Berners-Lee was thinking about his new hypertext system. And what was it about this old technology, the book, that so spoke to Berners-Lee as he designed what would become the key technology of the digital age? In what follows, I want to talk about the history of Inquire Within. I'm going to set out what made this book so typical of its time, but also why it spoke to Tim Berners-Lee all those years afterwards. I'm going to talk about who wrote Inquire Within and how it fitted into the world of cheap 19th century publishing. I'll describe the way that the book worked and what you would find when you opened it up to look something up. But I want to reflect, too, on the way Inquire Within operated as an information management system, utilising the form of the book to put things into place. The web, of course, is infinitely extensible, its limits determined by the amount of servers currently online, and it constantly changes as new content is added, pages are refreshed and new links are created. As a book, Inquire Within was bounded by its covers and had a set number of pages. In print and printed, not only was its content fixed, the words on the page, the order of the articles, but so too was the broader referencing system, the index that allowed you to inquire within. The web was intended as a non-hierarchical information management system, but quickly evolved into something else entirely, something much bigger. It's where we get our news, do our shopping, communicate with one another, kill time, find love, Inquire Within is not the same kind of information system. and It doesn't quite do all of those things, yet there remains something charmingly capacious about it. This is a little book with big ambitions, Inquire Within upon everything. And while it doesn't really contain everything, it does have an appealingly bizarre scope. And it's in this scope, I think, we can learn something interesting about both it And its readers. In the kinds of subjects covered, we see the practical and sensible, but also the apparently random, trivial, and personal. We see entries on personal appearance, on relationships, on how to behave in certain social situations. We see the kinds of things that people are afraid to ask for fear of looking stupid. We see, in other words, the search history of the Victorian age. Now Inquire Within was what we call a domestic miscellany. Um, It contains uh, an assemblage of facts and pieces of information about domestic life. It was first published as a book in 1856 for the very modest price of half a crown or two shillings sixpence. And I'll say a bit more about its cheapness later. On its title page, uh, there's an epigram that sets out its ambitions. And this epigram was actually a quotation from its own advertisement. This is what the epigram says. Whether you wish to model a flower in wax, to ornament a vase by the art of Poticomony, to serve up a relish for breakfast or for supper, to supply a delicious entree for the dinner table, to plan a dinner for a large party or a small one, to cure a headache, to get married, bury a relative to establish acquaintances according to the rules of etiquette whatever you may wish to do make or to enjoy provided your desire has relation to the necessities of domestic life i shall be happy to assist you and therefore upon all such occasions i hope you will not fail to inquire within now the book managed to do all of this and more by offering up its contents in a series of paragraphs, numbered paragraphs that ranged from number one, choice of articles of food, to number 3030, apprenticeship indentures. The articles, uh, these articles, these numbered articles weren't printed in any particular order. So they're, they're quite kind of random as you read through the book. You can't sort of see chains of connection between them. But some of them did come in useful little strings. So to give you some examples, number one, choice of articles of food, was followed by two, mackerel, three, turbot, four, cod, and then so on until you get to number 26, which is wood ducks and snipes. Um, And then it changes. So so number 27 is uh, to clean black cloth clothes. So you get these kind of abrupt ruptures as it moves on to another topic. Equally, The the last article, number 3030, Apprenticeship Indentures, was actually part of a series called Domestic Tables, Always Useful. I think this this article on Apprenticeship Indentures signals the readership of Inquire Within that people wanted to know what the legal basis of an apprenticeship was. Uh, There are also series uh, within Inquire Within on how to get married, which starts in number 2,911, Marriages. Uh, on how to stay married, uh, number 191, Husband and Wife. And this is a, an amusing one because it alternates between hints for wives and hints for husbands. There were a series on how to talk properly. So 1,323 is Errors in Speaking and Yorkshire has its own subsection. There's a series on punctuation, 1,647 punctuation, and dancing, number 1,678, quadrilles. But not everything was in series like this. Um, Some of my favourite one-offs are number 32, moths, open brackets, to get rid of them, close brackets, 68, walking. Uh, It opens, to walk gracefully, the body must be erect, but not stiff, and the head held up in such a posture that the eyes are directed forward. Number 71, my my wife's little tea parties, which I always think is a little bit boastful uh, and patronizing. Number 250, the art of being agreeable. Uh, And just to give this away, the art of being agreeable, according to Inquire Within, is to appear well pleased with all the company. Uh, Number 446, choice of friends, be careful. In your choice of friends wants inquire within. Number 833 How to Treat a Wife. First, get a wife, it starts. Secondly, be patient. Number 2032 Loves Telegraph. I like this one because the article that follows it is number 2033 Slugs and Snails. There are also uh, odd poems and humorous anecdotes scattered through Inquire Within, um, and numbers 3020 to 3022 are actually advertisements for other books published by Inquire Within's publishers, but at least they have the honesty to admit that in the articles. Now, to help readers actually inquire within, there was an index. Given the randomness of the contents, This was fundamental to the operation of the book. You couldn't inquire within without the index. The preface to the book made this clear. So there's on the title page was that epigram and then you turn the page uh, and then there's a a preface which they they repeat in, in subsequent editions. And this is what the preface says. If there be any among my readers who, having turned over the pages of Inquire Within, have hastily pronounced them to be confused and ill-arranged, let them at once refer to the index, or forever hold their peace. It continues, the index is to the vast congregation of useful hints and receipts that fill the boundary of this volume, like the directory to the great aggregation of houses and people in London. No one, being a stranger to London, would run about asking for Mr. Smith, but remembering the Christian name and the profession of the individual wanted would turn to the directory and trace him out. Like a house, every paragraph and inquire within has its number, and the index is the directory which will explain what facts, hints, and instructions inhabit that number. Now, this characterization of the index as directory and the book as a city, quite brilliantly captures both the charm and the way Inquire Within works. When you use the index, it says, not only will seeming chaos be revealed to actually have order, but what you'll find is an impossible immensity peopled by individuals who you can still come to know, and crucially, who you could find once again. Now, to take the book itself as technical What books do is they contrast a bounded and graspable outside with a content that gives way to impossible depths. Even the shallowest of books, I think, in the way that they seem to live outside the bounds of their covers, still exploit this contrast. Through its index, Inquire Within does the same thing, drawing attention to the diverse riches within. Yet, like many books in the period, it first appeared as a serial. It was first published in parts. Beginning in January 1855, so a year before the publication of the book, it was published in 12 monthly instalments, each of which cost tuppence and consisted of 32 pages. Now, this format is, I think, significant, and forgive me for getting into the details here, First of all, Tuppence. Tuppence was really cheap for a monthly publication. Charles Dickens's Little Dorrit, his novel Little Dorrit, for instance, which was then being serialised at the same time as Inquire Within, was two shillings per instalment, so it was 12 times as expensive as an instalment of Inquire Within.
0: Just search for the Ilkley Literature SETI Seminar Podcast for a wide range of podcasts to listen to. Don't forget, if you want to get your podcast on future editions of the show, please contact us at our studios in Bradford and tell us about it. Email info at bcbradio.co.uk, on Twitter at bcbradio. If you go to at Mike Kelly Disco on Twitter, you'll find download links to all the podcasts on today's show. So my friends, that's it for this edition of Pick the Podcast with me, Mike Kelly, on BCB 106.6 FM. The music theme, as you will have guessed, was to do with the colour red, and the songs came from Prince, Nina, Billy Ocean and UB40.